in our last episode. After S. Glenn Young and Ora Thomas killed one another in a shootout, Charlie escaped suspicion only to step into a jail cell a month later on a charge of possessing intoxicating liquor. Despite being sentenced to six months, Berger was released after only one. Free, he fulfilled his dream of building notorious entertainment complex, Shady Rest. Chapter 11, Part 2 In addition to keeping the local citizenry entertained, Shady Rest served as one of several layover stations for the booze-running Shelton Gang. The route from Daytona Beach, Florida to East St. Louis was first described by one Ralph Johnson in a series that appeared in the St. Louis Star. Johnson, a one-time member of the Shelton Gang, chose a pseudonym for the information he gave. There was, he said, an inlet, approximately 10 miles south of Daytona Beach and just north of New Smyrna, Florida, where a boat from West End Island and the Bahamas would deliver the whiskey to various rum runners, among them the Sheltons. Not until the cargo was unloaded at the dock into the Shelton's specially redesigned coupe did the money actually change hands. To avoid the very real possibility of a robbery en route, Carl Shelton would usually telegraph the amount from East St. Louis to his brother Earl in Florida. Loaded down with as many as 400 quart bottles each, the cars would head north toward Jacksonville. Avoiding that city, as they did most larger ones, they cut back onto the Dixie Highway north of Jacksonville, following it through Waycross and Osceola, Georgia, traveling northeast into Alabama. At some point, they caught Highway 31. Through Heflin and Anniston and Gadsden they drove, and on through the mountains of northeast Alabama, entering Tennessee at the little town of South Pittsburgh. Highway 41 led them to Little Plantation near Smyrna that was owned by a black man. Here the cars were driven into a garage. In a barn nearby, the weary drivers literally hit the hay. Avoiding Nashville the next day, they motored along Highway 41 until they reached another garage approximately 20 miles south of Henderson, Kentucky. Here, tires and other accessories were available. Also available were the tails, or touring cars carrying armed men, that followed closely behind as they journeyed over the hot state of Indiana. The tails were there to guard against the twin dangers of the liquor hauling trade, prohibition agents and hijackers. If either began pursuit, they were to block the road. Because these cars contained no liquor, the occupants had little to fear if arrested. Into Indiana by ferry at Henderson, the liquor runners traveled on toward Princeton, avoiding Evansville. At Princeton, they drove west towards Mount Carmel, Illinois, crossing the Wabash on a ferry. For those who earned their daily bread by transporting booze over the highways and back roads of the southeast and the midwest, Mount Carmel on the Wabash signaled a parting of the ways. Those bound for Chicago drove north, while the Shelton brothers drove west toward East St. Louis or south into Williamson County. From shortly before Christmas of 1924, when the Sheltons made their survey of the route, until the spring of 1925, when Georgia joined Indiana as being a hot state, the Daytona Beach-East St. Louis excursion provided much of Southern Illinois' liquor supply. Tropical breezes and shore-lapping waves were far from the minds of those who downed their drinks and ordered others. 
but from seashore to roadhouse, it was a neat and profitable operation. A case of Canadian Club, or Burke's Irish Moss, which sold for approximately $30 a case on the docks, brought from $75 to $85 in East St. Louis. The journey of four or five days often netted the rum runners from $1,000 to $1,500. According to Johnson, Bernie Shelton and Charlie Briggs did most of the hauling. My own source named, in addition to the two just mentioned and himself, Ray Walker, Freddie Wooten, and Monroe Blackie Arms. Like Johnson, my source insisted on anonymity. The liquor was bought from a man on his big bill at Daytona Beach who supposedly paid off the Coast Guard to let his boats bring in the stuff from the ships lying outside the three-mile limit. The cars used were big lumbering sedans with the back seats removed, and since the liquor was in tightly wrapped gunning sacks, one car could easily haul 50 cases. There were two men in a car and they drove straight through. One would drive while the other slept and they stopped only for gas and food, usually lunch meat, bought at a country store. They kept to the back roads, bypassing the larger towns. These cars were equipped with smoke dispensers capable of admitting an impassable fog if they were pursued by the police or hijackers. Surrounded by henchmen as armed as they were ignorant, mean-tempered bulldogs, eagles, and even a monkey named Jocko, Berger would always take a part of the delivery that he then sold to his own area, quote, after cutting the scotch 25%, of course. Most of the merchandise went to a garage the Sheltons ran in the East St. Louis suburb of Fairmont. From there, it was distributed to various points throughout southern Illinois. Meanwhile, the moonshiners and bootleggers of southern Illinois were not idle, and among their many customers was, of course, Charlie Berger. Using a team and wagon, one driver hauled half-gallon fruit jars and crock jugs of whiskey, all packed in straw from Eagle Creek in Gallatin County to the east door of the cabin at Shady Rest. He would make this trip once a week. Around sundown, he would arrive at a point near the still site, where another fellow would be waiting to take charge of the horses and drive them into the woods. Just where this was, the lad never learned because he was not invited along. When the loaded wagon rattled back into view, he pocketed the cash, stepped up to the driver's seat, and was gone. Except for equality, he skirted the towns. Skirting the towns didn't take much doing, since only El Dorado and Harrisburg stood between the hollows of Eagle Creek and Burger's Place, as far as he was concerned. Because the horses knew the way, the driver found time to sleep during the all-night journey. For each load, he received $25, plus the amount to be paid to the moonshiners for the next batch the next trip around. The driver turned to coal mining after Prohibition faded into history, and in time became a family man and a mason. Memory of hauling whiskey to a gangster weighed little on his conscience, yet something from that era did prove troubling down the years. The man who took the whiskey at Shady Rest seemed to have no last name. Everybody called him Smokey. One day, Smokey was not there, and his former cohorts seemed unable to recall him. Like Smoke, the man had vanished. Listening to the story, I almost had the impression that the informant half-believed he had dealt with a phantom. Tim Hobson, also from the Eagle Creek area, did not forget his former customer. <laughs> Charlie bought his whiskey from St. Louis and a couple of brothers in New Haven. I sold him a right smart of whiskey too, off and on. Uh, he bought it here and there. He would come and get it, and most of the time he was by himself. Drove a big Cadillac car, had two or three cars, Charlie did. Uh, had a big Buick touring car, a Hudson, and a Cadillac. He'd buy as high as 50 gallons at a time when he'd come. 
I sold it for $8 a gallon. Hobson said he made a lot of money in this time, but spent most of it on fines. Chapter 12. Bloodshed, Cockfights, and Bulldogs From Harrisburg and Heron and Marion came the bored businessmen and thirsty attorneys, the women whose easy laughter complimented the clinking of the glasses, and the miners who tried but could never quite wipe clean the coal dust from under their eyes. They came to drink, to laugh, and to seize the excitement Charlie had taken such pains to provide at Shady Rest. To help them along, Berger hired local bands. He was lucky once when a medicine show came through Harrisburg, boasting surefire cures for age-old ills and a band composed of silver strings. The latter he hired to entertain his clientele. He himself provided the medicine. Usually, however, the talent came from the nearby towns. One popular black group came from Harrisburg's East End, or Colored Section. It included Alvin Woods on saxophone and Charles Lennox on drums. What finally happened when the music and laughter became one under a whiskey mist could have been foretold by any street corner seer. Fully primed with a portion of the cargo from Daytona, or the equally important corn squeezings manufactured in the Illinois hills, some fellow or girl all but broke Charlie Lennox's heart by stepping through his drum. Hardly anyone else even noticed. However, few of the customers failed to notice when the blonde bombshell favored the crowd, as she often did with her strikingly uninhibited version of the Hoochie Coochie. She actually wanted to dance in the nude, but Charlie wouldn't permit that. Even as a child, in the days of World War I, she had entertained, singing for the lads of Harrisburg who were soon to be shipped to the trenches of France. Now a buxom young lady of less than twenty, she savored the attention that was abundantly hers, thinking no doubt that it, like the 1920s, would last forever. Moreover, she was grateful for the friendship of her employer. Charlie was almost like a father to her, and she was no less grateful to Alphaeus Guston and H.R. Lightfoot who often drove her to work. After the applause faded into the cracks in the logs, she resumed her duties as hostess by greeting the customers at the door. With its women and booze available for a price, and with its pseudo-rustic atmosphere, logs without and mounted deer heads within, the cabin appealed to a certain clientele. Out at the back and down in the woods, the bleachers around the fighting pits drew the gamblers, both professional and amateur. For them, bared fangs and a silver spur promised more thrills than a bought kiss or a turn on the dance floor. Willard St. John had cause to remember one cockfight in particular. I never did bet on but one rooster. In fact, he was the gamest looking rooster I ever saw. Boy, he was a strutter. I told Charlie, I said, I believe I'll bet on him. And Charlie said, well, I'll too. Now, a rooster, if you know anything about the history of a rooster fight, they don't gain much reputation because they don't live long enough. They put them buckle spurs on them and they fight to the finish. But that son of a gun, when they put out the other rooster in there with them, they wouldn't fight at all. He ran and I lost my bet and Charlie, <laughs> he don't grab that darn rooster up and just twisted his head off and threw it right out as far as he could. For the amount of blood shed, cockfights could not compare with the bouts between bulldogs, St. John added. Although roosters were noted for their short, frantic lives in the pits, and while the losing canines did not always die, the dogfights did seem more brutal. 
often the combatants would lock, burying their teeth into each other's necks. They could be separated only by having the wind choked out of them. Having watched many a cockfight with barely a blink, St. John observed that bulldog fights should never have been allowed. For sure, there was one that should never have been. Rudy Walker, who was there, thought it might even have been the cause of the trouble with the Sheltons later on. While that seems unlikely, the incident was, at least, an omen of the dark days ahead. Walker, Boots Dillard, and Pink Whitehouse, all of whom, quote, fought all the chickens we could get matches for, had taken their victorious fowl back to a cage in the back of Pink Whitehouse's pickup truck. They then returned to the arena, where yet another contest was soon to begin, this one between bulldogs belonging to Earl Shelton and Charlie Berger. According to Walker, after Shelton requested the fight, Berger, as a matter of course, asked the dog's weight. 62 pounds. Came the quick reply. As a courtesy, Berger took Earl's word on the weight. After all, they were old friends and business partners. Having spent many an hour at the card table in Berger's garage while Beatrice's washing machine did its work, the fight was on. In the arena, it was customary for the dogs to battle until their owners gave them up or they died. After a remarkably short battle, Berger's dog did the latter, causing Charlie to remark that the assertedly equal-sized mutt had handled his dog like a toy. Much too late, he insisted that the victor be placed on the scales. With obvious reluctance, Big Earl obliged. His dog weighed in at a hefty 73 pounds, while what was left of the loser only weighed 62 pounds. Clearly, this was a matter to be resolved on the spot. Walker mused more than half a century later, They had a shootout there in the chicken arena. Me and Boots stood behind one of those big old-fashioned pot-bellied stoves, and the bullets were going clink-clank as they hit the corrugated metal of the building, you know. Boots, I said. Can you get out through that hole there? That was where Berger had cut an oval place for his little puppy to get in for the night. He said, mm, I don't know. Well, I said, I'm going out through there. I can't get out through the door. Just one door to the place. And I got out there. So I pulled Boots through. He got hung in it and I pulled him through and took all the skin off his back. Well, Pink was still bigger than Boots and he crawled on his hands and knees till he got around to the door, and he never got hit. Me and Boots beat him out of there. They were still shooting inside. I don't know how many was hit. I got out of there as quick as I could. I will never forget what Pink said when he got in his truck. By golly, that ain't no place for a preacher's son, is it? Next time. He had one really bad character named Steve George, a man he had to watch like a hawk. Bragged Burger, I believe I could get him to kill anybody for maybe a cigar or at least a $5 bill. 